millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Support for MPB comes from Mississippi State University Libraries presenting the Templeton Ragtime Jazz Festival March 30th through April 1st with pianists Brian Holland and Jeff Barnhart and Dan Levinson's Roof Garden Jazz Band. Details at library.msstate.edu slash festival. Good morning. It's 830. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio, the date Thursday, March 29th. On today's show, as the legislative session draws to a difficult close, learn more about what lawmakers did to protect the capital city's fragile infrastructure. I would want to see the first area tackled in and around where the two museums are. We're celebrating our 200th anniversary uh, in December of this year. And the roads around uh, those two museums, the Civil Rights Museum, the History Museum, are in atrocious shape. Then, why the well-being of Mississippi children is so far below our national counterparts. And in the book club, no one knew Holly Springs' Kate Freeman Clark was a prolific artist until hundreds of her paintings were discovered after she died. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The capital city will receive an infusion of cash beginning next year to help with its dilapidated infrastructure. It was one of the last measures passed before Mississippi lawmakers ended the 2017 legislative session yesterday, several days ahead of schedule. The Department of Finance and Administration will oversee the special fund beginning in August 2018. 2% of the sales tax collected in Jackson will be diverted to the fund. The following year, it increases to 4% and tops out at 6% in 2020. At that point, the new arrangement should amount to about $11 million going toward road and bridge repair in the downtown area. Senator John Horn is a Democrat from Jackson. He tells our Desiree Frazier more about the bill, which has been in negotiations for three years. Well, our problems are many. Uh, We are um, problem-rich and resource-poor. But uh, for my money, I would want to see the first uh, area tackled in and around where the two museums are. We're celebrating our 200th anniversary uh, in December of this year. And the roads around uh, those two museums, the Civil Rights Museum, the History Museum, are in atrocious shape. And we really want to put our best foot forward. That would be where I would start. This has been a long time coming. Um, as you said, the Hines County delegation has worked on this for some time. What did it take to get to this point in your mind? I think the realization of, of legislators who don't live in the metro area, uh, as well as the leadership of the legislature, the House Speaker, as well as the Lieutenant Governor and the Governor, uh, coming to the realization that we, we've got to do something. The, the, the capital city... Is, is in such dire need for funds and for assistance in generating revenue that the state had to step in. And the state owns quite a few buildings in the capital city? Well, the, uh, the state uh, has a $5.6 billion investment in the capital city. And we feel that uh, in, it's in the best interest of the state 
to protect its investment, but also it's in the best interest of the state to make sure that, that the capital city shines. And uh, the way that, that most states do it is a payment in lieu of taxes because these buildings are not subject to taxation. Uh, they give, in other uh, states, they give uh, payments in lieu of taxes. We don't do that in Mississippi. So this is the next best thing. And so what you're saying then, there has really been no state money put forward to this effort until now. No, there's not been a, a, an effort uh, put forth on the part of the state to come up with a consistent, reliable source of funding to support the capital city. Your feelings at this point having this come through? Well, you know, we know that we're going to be criticized by some uh, who will say they don't like certain features of this measure. But my question to them is, okay, what's your solution? What's your alternative? We have to get more revenue and a source of support in this city. Uh, and it, this being the capital city, it's very appropriate that the state would, would do for the capital city what it does for a lot of, of communities around uh, other parts of the state. A lot of smaller cities get a tremendous amount of support from MDOT to do their roads. Uh, the city of Jackson gets very little support from the Mississippi Department of Transportation for its roads. So the next best thing is for us to, to generate a consistent revenue source that will come for the benefit of the capital city. Uh, and, you know, in the meantime, the, the state will cover uh, some of those costs uh, and, and handle the, the repair work itself. Uh, there's a lack of confidence on the part of the state that the capital city uh, is, is disposed to doing things in a timely, efficient fashion. We brought that part on ourselves because we have been guilty of that. Uh, but but the, 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 I think the average Mississippian is concerned more about seeing the work get done. I don't know that they care who, who does it. The advisory board is gone. Is that correct? The commission is gone. There is no commission. The Department of Finance and Administration, which is responsible for the operation and maintenance of state buildings anyway, uh, is going to be the, the entity that will handle uh, making sure the repairs are made. They can contract with the city if they so choose. Uh, they can contract with other sources if they so choose. Uh, but it's the Department of Finance and Administration that will, will have the final say about how that money is going to be rolled out and which improvements will be made first. Uh, and then in addition to that, uh, we will have um, an advisory committee that will work with the Department of Finance and Administration to uh, make sure that uh, the uh, plans that are, are selected and decided upon for improvement are in, in keeping with what is in the best interest of all parties. Senator John Horn. Representative Adrian Wooten, a Democrat from Ridgeland, says the bill took a lot of work. She says no one got everything they wanted, but she's pleased with the compromised. We just passed the Capital City Improvement District Bill there are some significant differences in the bill based on compromise that took place with the conferees on the Senate side. But instead of us getting 12.5%, the max will only be 6%. There will not be a commission to oversee things. It will go through DFA. Um, the advisory council is still there. So, you know, with the percentages being changed, the first fiscal year, which is going to be 2019, we only get 2%. Second fiscal year, 4%. And then 
from there, 6%, and that's the max that we will receive at this point in time. But, you know, I have received, you know, assurances from leadership that we are going to work to get more monies put in place, and hopefully that will take place in the future. You think that's important to begin to deal with the infrastructure issues in the city? Absolutely it is, because you don't want to say something is better than nothing, but this is a starting point for us. And so I hope to build off of what we have done today. So this is really something that you're focused on? Yes, ma'am. What would you say to people who are a little disappointed? I'm disappointed, too, but we have to start somewhere. We have to start somewhere. You know, it's kind of like getting an entry-level position. Work our way up. And I have all the faith in the world that we're going to do a little bit better as the years go by with getting more monies put into this bill. I do. And one of the complaints has been that the state hasn't supported the city, and the city has a lot of property that is untaxable. And we've tried to take care of that at this point. Now, you know, as I stated, we would prefer to have gone in and received what we asked for initially. But whenever you have compromise, you know, both neither side will be absolutely satisfied, but you'll be able to live with the results that you walk out with. And that's what we have here today. We have a compromise that has taken place. We have monies that will now be received by the city of Jackson for infrastructure uh, work that needs to be done. And we have assurances that we're going to continue to build from this point on in making this better for the city of Jackson. Representative Adrian Wooten with our Desiree Frazier. In other news, family members of Emmett Till are urging the U.S. Attorney General to implement the law that allows prosecutors to reinvestigate civil rights murder cases. MPB's Alexis Ware reports on the Emmett Till Civil Rights Crimes Act. We heard about the news about Emmett Till and that that was about the worst thing. I've seen a lot of bad things, but that was the worst thing I could have heard of. That's Willie Blue. He was 16 living in Charleston when Emmett Till was murdered in 1955 in Money, just a few towns over. That let all of us young boys, teenage boys, know what kind of trouble we were really in. Till was a 14-year-old boy from Chicago who was kidnapped, tortured, and killed for whistling at a white woman. Now, decades later, the woman, Carolyn Donham, is saying she wasn't telling the truth. Deborah Watts, the cousin of Emmett Till, is now pushing Attorney General Sessions to enforce the law allowing civil rights cases to be investigated. Watts spoke to MSNBC. She says simply passing the law isn't enough. The implementation of the bill needs to take place. There are other families out there that have no justice. They don't know the truth about some of their loved ones that have been murdered. Uh, there's been no adjudication. There's been no answers. And so they deserve that. For Watts, enforcing the law will require communication between the families and the justice system. We need to develop a master plan where we have open lines of communications with the Justice Department. Also, the ability to work with them as appropriate and within the law. Watts says she's confident in the commitment of the Attorney General to work together and find a pathway to justice. Alexis Ware, MPB News. Coming up, find out why the well-being of Mississippi children is so far below our national counterparts. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Join me each Thursday for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. 
Each week we talk with you about the health issues that are facing your children. From acne to concussions to diaper rashes and tonsils. From potty training to allergies to braces and everything in between. It's Mississippi's free weekly pediatric clinic on the radio. Listen to any of our episodes on demand through the MPB Public Radio app and online at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, this morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi's children rank 50th among all the states in overall well-being. That's according to research from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Well-being is more than just a medical yardstick. It takes into account health, mental wellness, poverty, access to education, and more. Olita Fitzgerald is with the Children's Defense Fund. She's part of a new Southern Remedy special airing tonight on MPB TV. She stopped by our studios to talk about child well-being in Mississippi. Mississippi's poverty rate is higher than most other states. And child well-being is directly related to the income levels of parents for the most part. Uh, If you have resources, you are able to provide your your children um, access to quality education, access to quality early learning, access to health care, and and generally um, uh, better food and all of those things that come when you have resources. So child well-being and, and Mississippi, I think, is directly related to the poverty level of the families in the state. The other issue around Mississippi that um, is what we tend to do in this state in support of those families who live in, in, in poverty or not do. So um, if we are not making sure that families who are struggling have the kind of social supports they need to be able to ensure their children uh, a healthy and safe and and well life. We get stuck with children not having what they need to be able to grow and to be nurtured and and uh, and all of those things. When we talk about children well well being, it's not just physical well being. We're talking about emotional well being. You're talking about emotional well being. You're talking about uh, the ability to. Um, to be successful at school, uh, you, you are talking about health care and, and access to health care and, and, and mental health care, which is what most people think about uh, when they think about well-being. And there's but difficulty there because it's other. a rural state and access to health care is a challenge? Access to health care is a challenge. Access to medical professionals is a challenge. Um, we... the. We live in a state where you absolutely have to have access to transportation. There's just no way. Half of our, our people live in rural areas. Uh, rural areas are struggling uh, economically. So people who, whose incomes are, are not very high generally work in, in arenas or on jobs where they don't have flexibility. So when... If you're working an assembly line job for a small business, they don't have a crew of people on, on, you know, on the sideline that they can call in if somebody has to be off their job with a sick child or if they themselves are not well. Couple that with the inability to, to access physicians and health care after 5 o'clock or after hours increases the problems for children who need preventive kinds of 
Health Services. And you've worked throughout the state and the region. Can you, because you've given us the big picture now, can you give us a, a specific or put a face on this problem? We have uh, children, uh, and I, I won't call a child's name, but uh, we have children who, in our state, many children suffer from respiratory illnesses because of the environment that they live in, and particularly in a rural environment where there's, and we have lots of allergies, and, but, but lots of respiratory problems. We also have children that are suffering from childhood obesity. And those, those illnesses require, one, that people have their children receive preve- preventive services, but two, that they have the ability to get to a doctor and get to a doctor fairly quickly. The other, when we look at obesity, we have children whose families are struggling and they're not getting the best diet so that while they can access the doctor, they're not always able to access the other things that will make their lives healthier. You have brought up a number of solutions, access to care, getting parents more involved by by helping them not have to work more than one job, uh, low wages. There are a number of things that need to be addressed that may make that number go down. How does it start? What kind of policies need to be initiated to make that better? We have to recognize that most times people are doing the best they can. When we know that... Uh, that many people don't have access to reliable transportation and poor people in many instances move around, then if, it's, if we don't have a policy environment that supports connecting families to resources as much as it supports making sure that somebody's not getting something that they shouldn't be getting or making it as difficult as possible for people to access services, then, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a continuing struggle. Alina Fitzgerald is the Southern Regional Director for the Children's Defense Fund. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Karen. You can learn much more about the well-being of Mississippi's children by watching the Southern Remedy special, Growing Up Well. It's tonight at 7 on MPB TV and online at mpbonline.org. No one knew Holly Springs' Kate Freeman Clark was a prolific artist until hundreds of her paintings were discovered after she died. Learn more in this week's book club next. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein, director of radio here at MPB. We asked and you delivered. One day, one drive reached our goal because of you. MPB Think Radio is your station, and you proved it by donating $125,000 in one day. You made public radio history in Mississippi. All that's left to say is thank you. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Kate Freeman Clark was a painter. Not that anyone would have known it when she died in 1957 at age 81. People were surprised to find out not only did Clark leave behind a warehouse full of exquisite paintings, she also left money to fund a museum for her work, which people can now visit in Clark's hometown, Holly Springs. Author Carolyn Brown profiles Kate Freeman Clark in her new book, The Artist's Sketch. Brown joins us in this week's book club. 
one of the things that I discovered in doing my research in Holly Springs is you can't pigeonhole Kate Freeman Clark. I think she has been identified as a plein air landscape painter, and those are the works that are are out there and most well-known. But what was so exciting to discover was that she actually did beautiful portraits and still lives and watercolors and sketches. So I don't like to say she's one over another. All examples can be found in the gallery in Holly Springs. Now, is it right that she died and suddenly a thousand of her pieces of art were discovered? <laughs> it's absolutely correct. Unbelievable. And it's an unbelievable story, which is why I decided to do it, because it was the ending of her life that intrigued me how she died with no heirs, relatively unknown in her community of Holly Springs as an artist. And in her will, it was upon the reading of her will that she left to the city of Holly Springs $60,000 with the intent, she writes in her will, of building a small gallery to house her art. And they were unaware of this art because it had been in storage in New York since actually before her mother's death. I mean, it had been in storage since the 19-teens because her mother had rented a storage unit to house the paintings because they lived in a very small boarding house and there was no room for the art and the paintings where they were living in the city. So these paintings were actually in storage. I saw a receipt in the archives from as early as 1915 they were in that storage unit in New York since then, all the way up till when they got delivered to Holly Springs. Who curated the exhibit? Because surely there aren't a thousand of her paintings <laughs> in this gallery. Oh, well, so in the little gallery in Holly Springs, actually the majority of paintings are, are there. They built a building. And um, the building is not large, but it has three rooms that they can hang you know, between 20, 20 paintings in each room. And then they have storage facility in the back that, yes, the remaining paintings are all back there in a storage facility. And, and you know, a lot of them are not framed, Karen. They're, like, loose. And so they don't take up lots of room. The manager of the gallery, Walter Webb, has done a very good job of changing up the paintings. In order to photograph them for the book, they did send a lot of the the ones I wanted in the book to, to be restored, which was wonderful. So they actually look fabulous right now. And hopefully at some point the rest will be restored as well. How is Kate Freeman Clark, uh, how does she stand up in the art community? Well, I think that's really hard to judge because she's never really been known in the art community. And that's something I hope will change with my book and with this show at Ole Miss. What I have read about her in art books when she is mentioned, which is not consistently, when she did exhibit, she exhibited under an pseudonym as Freeman Clark and not as Kate Freeman Clark. And that was not uncommon at the turn of the century for women to show their work as a man. Other women artists did it. But it makes it much harder <laughs> to look at their exhibition record because, um they're harder to identify and locate. Um, today, the books that I've read, art history books or books about Southern women artists, if she's included, she is 
highly respected and at times when her work has come up for auction is it has gone for quite a bit of money i'm hoping though that my book as i'm a biographer and not an art historian i like to say i wrote a biography about a painter but now i would invite art critics and art scholars to really give her work the critical analysis that it's due Carolyn J. Brown is the author of The Artist's Sketch, a biography of painter Kate Freeman-Clark. Carolyn, thank you so much. Thank you, Karen. The exhibit, Lasting Impressions, Restoring Kate Freeman-Clark, is now on display at the University of Mississippi Museum in Oxford. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10 o'clock, it's MPB Season Pass. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from one or from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio.